pray with me, if you will. Father, we have just heard and read the teaching of our Lord Jesus, Your only Son, giving us in no uncertain terms commandments and warnings about how we are to live and how not to live. We thank You for this. and We ask that You would work in us and change our hearts so that when we hear such teaching, our flesh would not win. I ask that we would not draw back, but rather let these words from our Messiah who loves us sink in and change us. We want to bear fruit, Father. I pray that if there's anyone in this room who actually doesn't want to bear fruit for God, that you would change their hearts even today. And those of us who want to, please work in us, granting us a deeper understanding of your kingdom. May the joy and gladness and glory and hope of your kingdom propel us by your Spirit to walk in more obedience from the heart. May we keep your commandments and so abide in your love. And in that love, Father, let us show forth the good works that you prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We pray these things in the name of Your only Son, Jesus. Amen. So when Jesus Christ began His public ministry, there were, of course, many miracles and signs that He worked. But predominantly, His ministry was a ministry of preaching. The message He preached was the Gospel of the Kingdom of God. We today, most of us, have truncated that down to something just like the gospel. And I think, especially depending on your upbringing or the Bible, uh, the book of the Bible you like most, the ideas of the kingdom uh, don't resonate, aren't knocking around in our minds as much as other things might. And yet for Jesus, this was his central message, the gospel of the kingdom of God. In fact, Mark, we'll, get, we'll look at this passage in a bit, but when Mark in his gospel summarizes the preaching ministry of Jesus, this is after John was arrested, Jesus went into the countryside and began to preach, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And I think one of the reasons that we don't think a lot about the kingdom and understand how the gospel relates to the kingdom is because, like I said, if you, if you just love Romans, for example, and that's your book, or you pick one particular book out of the Bible, uh, the emphasis is more on correcting false teaching or exhorting churches against certain errors, but the kingdom isn't front and center. This is why you need your whole Bible, all of it. And we can create a Bible within the Bible or a canon within the canon and treat those few books or those few passages as really, really important. And we miss the big picture. And my argument, and I think this is the argument of Christ's ministry and His teaching, the big picture is the kingdom of God. What Jesus came to do, what the gospel accomplishes, is bringing people into the kingdom of God. 
But it is not merely an eschatological reality. This means that it's not just something that's going to happen one day. It is happening now. It is coming. It is burgeoning. It is, it is, it is piercing from the future into the present, even now as we speak. And it takes place and it develops in the hearts of people who are yielded to do the will of the King of this kingdom. It's important to remember that. To remember this rich, robust understanding of the kingdom of God when we read the rest of our Bibles. Because when we encounter a little word like kingdom, as we read the rest of the New Testament, all of that wealth of theology, all of that wealth of richness in Jesus' teaching about the kingdom needs to be brought in. And that's what we encounter today. For these last several weeks, we've been studying 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-11. through 11. And so it is important that we really remember the backdrop of Jesus' own ministry and Peter's own time with Jesus as we read in verse 11 this statement. The eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We shouldn't just gloss over the significance of a statement like that, a phrase like that, or use it as a stand-in for heaven. That's typically the way I think most Christians, I myself, when we are just reading through your Bible and you see the word kingdom, you just interpose the idea of heaven. But that's not the same thing. How would you define the kingdom of God? It's difficult to define. Don't let anyone tell you any differently. Here's my working short definition for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the past, present, and future reality, seen and unseen, ever increasing and unfolding, where God is glorified preeminently and now explicitly through pure allegiance to and passionate treasuring of the person of Jesus. That's almost too general and too broad to be helpful, um, but it's workable at least, and I took a swing at it. Um, But you'll notice that each of those parts of that definition, the, the concept of the kingdom of God, encompasses many realities, many truths that you're already familiar with. Um, and it's actually all the ideas that we've been seeing in First Peter chapter, Second uh, Peter chapter one, verses three through eleven. Without mentioning the word kingdom yet until verse eleven, Peter's been talking about the kingdom this entire time. In fact, we could say that verses three through eleven of First of Second Peter one. I'll get it right at some point. Second Peter. That's the book we're in. We could say that verses three through eleven of chapter one is a summary of all the major truths about the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And, and this passage, verses 3 through 11, that we've been in for now, I think, five weeks, uh, has a summary also, or it has echoes back to the teaching of Jesus, like we read in our New Testament reading. So, what I'm setting us up for, this is, this is all setting us up for what this message is. I'm setting us up for four things as we investigate the second half of verse 11 this morning. The first thing I'm trying to do is give you, this is the main structure of the the message, four reasons to rejoice in light of the kingdom of God, in light of the truth 
of the kingdom of God. Four big reasons to rejoice. Secondly, I will show how these reasons for rejoicing are not just in verse 11, but have already been introduced in verses 3 through 10. Thirdly, I'll try to show how these truths, these reasons for rejoicing found in verse 11, the second half, are actually echoes of the teachings of Jesus. So we'll draw on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to show these truths and encourage us to more rejoicing in light of the kingdom. And lastly, we'll draw, number four, we'll draw a few applications. So let me read 2 Peter Chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. You can turn there if you like. 2 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's an amazing passage. And now I want to show you four strong reasons, four big reasons to rejoice in view of what this text tells us about the kingdom. So number one, if you're following along in the notes on the table out there for you in the foyer, or if you're just taking your own, this is the first one. Number one, rejoice. There is an eternal kingdom. There is an eternal kingdom. And this can give us great motivation for rejoicing. I've said this before, and I'll repeat it here today. If there's anything the last five to ten years have taught us or shown us, it's that the truth, the age-old truth, that everything changes is really true. Things we thought were stable aren't so stable anymore. Things we thought would never happen have happened. And all our conspiracy theory friends are owed an apology. But in all seriousness, in many ways the world has turned upside down and not for the right reasons. Many heartbreaking things that I thought I would never see in the household of God have happened. Fault lines have been revealed that are depressing. Relationships between leaders and pastors and different denominations and groups have been broken beyond repair. So on to this landscape of so many different hopes being broken and crushed and a malaise of disappointment hanging over the church and all this frustration, then the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is there as this foundational, unchanging truth. It is the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. The encouragement here is not just that the kingdom of Christ is more powerful and influential than any entity in the universe. It is. But rather that the kingdom of God in some sense is bedrock reality. It is there. It is, it is eternal. This is where I'm getting this. This one little word. The eternal kingdom. This word in the New Testament can mean having no beginning and having no end. 
And the context can determine if it means one or the other or both. And I think in this sense, it means both. It had no beginning and it had no end. It It will have no end. It is just there as a brute fact of the universe. Certainly it is developing and certainly we can join into the kingdom. We'll talk about that in a little bit. There, there, the, the whole plan of the gospel is to bring people into it. But it itself is there eternally, forever. It's something solid, something to grasp hold of. Something outside the veil of this world. A city whose foundations were laid down by God, not by man. It is not like the kingdoms of this earth. It's not like this world system. It's not like the governments of this world. It's not like the little kingdoms we try to build, our castles and our legacies that we seem so interested in establishing. And understand that this is why Peter is mentioning in verses 3 through 11 that we've been provided with escape. We are escaping the corruption of this world. Look at verse 4 in 2 Peter 1. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world due to sinful desires. This world is corrupt. And the Lord is establishing His kingdom. His desire and plan from before all time is to take us out of the corruption of the world and to place us in the kingdom of His beloved Son. He does not... He he does this by nothing short of changing our origin story. This is the miracle of the new birth by which He causes us to participate, to be members of of this kingdom. This is what Jesus says in verse 17. He makes us all together different. Uh, this is what Jesus says in John 17, rather. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, and here's the phrase, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, The world hates you. To be in the kingdom means then that while we are still in the world, right? We we are all on this planet, right? Yet we are at odds with the world. We are exiles from the moment we are born again. You're living as an alien or a sojourner, estranged from all the rest of mankind because you belong to the Lord and you belong to this kingdom and it will be so until god completely remakes the world and we are ushered into the new heavens and the new earth so the encouragement here is also a challenge and a summons there is an eternal kingdom the foundational brute eternal reality is there to be seen and known And God has made you escape and is making you escape from the corruption that is in the world to be part of this eternal kingdom. This is amazing. Are we living like it? Or are we finding our hope in a transformed, Christianized world before the time? 
Or are we finding our hope in our accomplishments, our relationships, our ministry, our success? No, you are sons and daughters of God and co-heirs of the eternal kingdom of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Lift up your eyes, weary Christian. Christ has made you His own and has made you part of the kingdom that will last forever. Secondly, rejoice. The second reason to rejoice in view of the kingdom. Jesus Christ is King of the eternal kingdom now. This is an implication. It's not outright stated. Jesus isn't named as the King with that title specifically, but it's, it's an implication of the grammar it is the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Where there is a ship, there is a captain. Where there is an army, there is a leader, or at least a ranking officer. Where there is a business, there is an owner. Where there is an income, there is an IRS agent. Where there is a Chick-fil-A, there are soccer moms. Where there is a hospital, there are caretakers. Where there is a courtroom, there is a judge. And where there is a kingdom, there is a king, and his name is Jesus. I know we're not a very charismatic congregation, but you can say an occasional amen to statements like that. There is a kingdom, and Jesus is king, and he is king forever. He is enthroned. He reigns now. Jesus Christ is king eternal. He's not the president of the democracy. He's not the prime minister of the commonwealth. He is king. He is monarch. He is called the king of kings and lord of lords. Brothers and sisters, do you live with a daily awareness of being under the rule and reign of King Jesus? It is so encouraging to know that as leaders fail us, deceive us, abuse us, and lord their authority over us and seek to take advantage of us. And the good leaders are opposed, maligned, and get sick and die. There Jesus is alive and reigning in the heavens. And no one can do anything about it. Now the idea of Christ being king is encouraging and beautiful on its own. But it is also true that we can leave that truth, the truth of His reign and rule, uh, and His being seated at the right hand of God in power on high. We can just leave that as a theoretical or beautiful idea to think about in our most theological moments. But there is so much practicality to this idea of Christ reigning now, and it's real. It is not hypothetical. It is not a narrative to overlay onto your existence. His kingship is more real than any ruler of this earth. There's so much I'd love to say about the solid fact that Jesus Christ is king now. Jesus reigns now. 
And all who do not to, to submit to him, all who do not submit to him now, be they peasants, princes, or presidents, or proletarians, are in violation of his rule and reign now. Jesus himself says, "All authority on heaven and uh, in heaven and on earth has been given to me." He has it. It has been given. It, it's not, it will be one day given to me. It's, not, it's my possession that I will take hold of one day when I return. All authority is His now. Wonderful words of life. These ideas of the truth of Christ's kingship are. But the most basic rubber-hits-the-road type of implication that, of this truth is that our King commands us how to live. You have a king, and he tells you how to live. You can dispense with all the complexity, get rid of all the confusion about obedience and the relationship between works and faith and justification and sanctification, and simply ask, do you desire to follow the commands of your king? That's it. Peter exhorts us, in, in verses 3 through 11, make every effort to supplement your faith with these qualities virtue, knowledge, self control, godliness, steadfastness, brotherly affection, and love. Becoming a Christian means that you trust the Lord Jesus is king and believe with conviction and follow through with that claim to believe that his way is best. We ought to do things differently in the kingdom because our king commands us how to live. And if there is a significant disparity between the way we live and the way our king commands us, then it should alarm us. Even as Jesus himself asks to those listening to him in Luke chapter 6, you can hear the frustration in his voice. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do what I tell you. It's a contradiction. Martin Luther, the great reformer, the one who brought justification by faith alone, not our works, back to center stage, said this in thesis number one of his 95 theses. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, Matthew 4, 17, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This is the will of our King. Jesus said, as we already saw, the time is fulfilled. The Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. And I think that many are content to just boil that down to some version of believe in God. That is not the Gospel of the Kingdom. No, we do things differently. The new birth is real. The grace of God has real effect in your lives to bring about holiness and a changed life. It begins the new birth, the promise of sharing His nature that we've seen in Second Peter begins to change us from the inside out, makes us conform to the image of Christ. There is no other way. I don't want to make this discouraging at all, there's, there's, but there's no way to change the shape of this idea that Jesus is King and He tells us how to live. And we must, all flesh must, submit to Him. 
His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He equips us with the Spirit whereby we can walk in obedience, but with all the nuance and all the addition and all the help that we might say, we must yet walk in obedience to Him. And this is a good thing. It is good that it is so, that He is our King and He commands us. Imagine being a a commander of some outpost, some small fort in, in in a battle, a war. Maybe picture a medieval war or battle and you've got this little fort and a few guys under your command and you're just getting overwhelmed. You can use another word. But you're just getting smoked by the enemy. And then your king arrives. And you just tell me what to do. I don't want to be in command anymore. This is the effect of having a good king over you. This is reflected in the words that the queen of the south said to Solomon when she came and saw all his greatness. The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Jesus is our King forever. He is the eternal King. He will rule from the throne of His Father David forever. He is the greater and perfect Solomon who will not fail. Something greater than Solomon is here. And our King is good and just and righteous altogether. Happy are we, His servants, because He rules in justice and righteousness. We have a King. We have the King. Why are we so afraid and fretful? Rise up, O men of God, and be done with sin. Be done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of kings. Number three, rejoice. The eternal kingdom is of Jesus Christ. My goodness, it is so important to pay attention to the little tiny connecting words in your Bible. There's so much that can come from this. These these are prepositions and they mean a lot of things. Observations like what we're about to see are right beneath the surface. If you just slow down and ask good questions of the little words in your Bible. What does it mean that it is of Jesus Christ? Well, three answers to that. Three sub-points, implications of this little word. The eternal kingdom is of Jesus Christ. Number one, it is because of Jesus that this kingdom exists. It is because of Jesus that this kingdom exists. It is all His doing. It is His work to create and make it. Peter has already told us that Jesus grants to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
Further, the Lord Himself calls us and chooses us to be part of this thing. We saw that in calling and election. It is His own plan, and He will cause us to partake of His divine nature. We didn't come up with this. In the teachings of Jesus, we see this truth very clearly. In Matthew 25-24, Jesus says that the Father is preparing the kingdom for us. Jesus is the One who is the agent and heir, and He is making it all come to pass. He is bringing it to fruition. In John's Gospel, chapter 3, this is a very familiar idea to most of us, we see that we must have the new birth in order to even see the kingdom of God. Further, Jesus says that it is God who makes it possible for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven. Mark 10.27 Because with man it is impossible. And He does all this. The Father makes it possible for us to enter this kingdom all through sending Jesus to bring us in. Now in verse 11, Peter names Jesus, the Lord Jesus, explicitly as the one who creates or brings this kingdom into existence. The the kingdom is of Jesus. It it is the sense of coming from Jesus. That's, That's one of the flavors of this preposition, coming from Him. When He sits on the throne, it is not with a posture of presumption or privilege or because He was merely born into wealth. No. As He rules and reigns over the kingdom of God, it is like an artist or a workman having rights of possession and determination over their creation. It is from Him. He did it. The kingdom exists because of Jesus, even before all time when the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. And here's the second implication of this. This this isn't explicit through the preposition, but it's just a a follow-through, a corollary of what we just saw. The kingdom exists, number two, because of pure grace. It is pure grace. Not the works that we have done It is for God. The kingdom is for God. Jesus brought this kingdom into existence for God, but also for us, God's people. We were not involved in the building of the kingdom. We are commanded to seek the kingdom, but God builds it. The Lord Jesus builds it, and it is out of pure grace that He does so. We've already seen that He has given us, verse 4, 2 Peter 1, verse 4, that God has granted to us, Jesus has granted to us His precious and very great promises. You don't earn great and very precious promises. He's done it by no merit of our own. And it's the same idea with the kingdom. It's not because we deserved the kingdom. He did it. Did it out of love and did it in pure grace to create this kingdom and bring us in. And it's not just the work and the activity and the power of God that creates the kingdom, but it is in His serious and overabundant grace and mercy and kindness that He does this. Jesus Himself speaks this way with respect to the kingdom. 
from Luke 12. This is what we saw as we read our New Testament reading. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It pleases God out of pure grace to build this at the cost of His own Son's life and to hand it over to you, welcoming you into His family. This is what He does. Out of pure grace. All of it, all of it, from the foundation of the kingdom to its continued existence, to our participation in it, is totally of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ. Thirdly and finally, under this third heading, the kingdom exists for Jesus Christ. That's what this preposition of means. Belonging to, existing because of, and for. All at the same time. It's not just king in some governmental sense. Like there was already an entity waiting for a king to come and sit on the throne and, and let's, let's uh, spin the heavenly roulette and see who's worthy to sit on the throne. The kingdom exists Because Christ deserves it. He owns it. He created it and is filling it with His people, giving His own life to purchase them back from the dead, to cause them to be citizens of this kingdom. And He sustains it by the word of His power. He does this all, not merely as the servant, or God's agent, or the member of the Trinity who drew the short straw to go and do all the work. No, rather He does all of this because it's all for Him. He is the end goal. His glory, we might say, is the end goal of the kingdom in the first place. This is the Father's design. Give me any excuse to read this passage in a sermon and I'll take it. But this passage ties together all these things so clearly from Colossians chapter 1. Paul tells us that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. It exists for Jesus. We might say it this way. Jesus Christ is the purpose of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But Peter makes a clear connection between his rule and his reign and his status as Savior. He puts these two ideas together without, almost without distinction. He is Lord and He is Savior the fittingness of Him being King of this kingdom isn't just built on the fact that He's God. It is established on these two twin pillars. He is Lord and He is Savior. We must never separate 
those in our minds. And this brings us to the last reason to rejoice. Number four, rejoice. One may enter this eternal kingdom. This is kind of bleeding back into the first half of verse 11. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This amazing, wonderful, powerful, eternal kingdom ruled by the Lord Jesus Himself, the Redeemer and Creator of it, is not just everywhere in some vague or unhelpful sense. It is a reality that you can be in now with real hope, real hope to enter it in its final form. Or you can be out of it and not headed for entrance into its final form. All people in the world, every person that you meet can be aligned with one of those two statements. Either in and headed for the final form of the kingdom of God and of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ or out of the kingdom and not headed for entrance into its final form. Peter says that we have come to possess this kingdom through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So some of you may ask, maybe you're asking right now, well, if everyone is in or out, headed to it or headed away from it in its final form, then how do you get in? The answer is simple, of course. It is through what Peter says, knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he equates that to faith down in verse 5. So this, this idea of faith, this deep, intimate, personal knowledge and trust of the Lord Jesus, that's how you get in to this kingdom. Mark summarizes, as we've already seen now twice, the preaching ministry of Jesus. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus preaches the gospel by announcing the dawn of the kingdom on earth and summons people to partake in it through repentance and belief in the gospel. The good news concerning himself. Narrow is the door that leads to life. And the exact shape of that narrow door, the exact outline of that narrow door that leads to life, is no bigger or smaller than personal trust in the Lord Jesus as Lord. We cannot enter any other way. He is the door to the sheepfold. He doesn't watch the door. He is the door. Friends, understand in this verse and shown throughout all Scripture, notice it, provided for you an entrance. This is taught all throughout Scripture. Entrance into this eternal kingdom is provided for you. You can't earn entrance into such a kingdom. 
You don't deserve entrance into such a kingdom. We were enemies of God, doing evil deeds, corrupt in mind and heart, and were the cause of the corruption in the world. God richly provides entrance to those who merely and humbly seek Him. We have seen over the last few weeks that it's possible to be self-deceived with respect to the kingdom. One can think that they are in and that they are cool with Jesus and even be doing a lot of good works and good things for Him, and yet they can go down a path of gospel forgetfulness, ineffectiveness, fruitlessness, and ultimately falling away. And this is echoed in the teachings of Jesus. There's, there's no way to soften statements from our Lord like this. Hear the words of your King, your loving King, who cares too much about you to not tell you the truth. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? How much do you do for Jesus? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Mere faith in Jesus is shown or validated by a desire as as imperfect and as fledgling as that desire might be. But deep down, what is at the bedrock, the bottom of your heart? I want to please the Father and follow my King Jesus. Is that there? It must be. That is what the new birth does. Maybe you haven't dug down deep enough. And maybe you have an overly condemning conscience where any violation of His commands is seen for you as proof positive that you don't have that. If that's not how it works, if you have any desire, if that is what is at bedrock, then God is at work. This passage still reminds us that entrance into the eternal kingdom is something that is ultimately provided for us. It is all of grace. The kingdom exists by God's grace and we are provided entrance into this kingdom by God's grace. That's the massive encouragement underneath all of this. When Peter says that we have come to share His nature and that even as we add these things to our faith, entrance is richly provided for us. That points us to the truth that even in our striving, even in our diligence to follow the commands of the Lord Jesus, it is all by His Spirit and all by His grace. The Lord knows who are His. and He will keep you and He will not lose one of the ones that the Father has given into His hands. He will surely do it. He will bring your faith to completion even as He is the author of your faith. What can man or the accuser himself do to me? God will keep me. But you might ask, why should I want to be part of this kingdom? I mean, this all, all this stuff about Jesus being Lord 
All this obedient stuff, all this Him ruling over me and telling me how to live. Who wants all of that? Well, in answer I would say that logically, there can only be one eternal kingdom. Just think about it. There's only one that's been there forever. There's only one king over that eternal kingdom. So if you don't want to be part of that one eternal kingdom, then the only place for you in the universe is outer darkness, the void, and condemnation. But there, that, So that's the negative reason why you should want to be in the kingdom. That's the only place where life is. But here's the positive reason. Every kingdom is about something. Every kingdom or nation or country has some kind of teleology or end or culture, a target that it's aiming for. In our nation's history, that is what? Freedom. Freedom from what? Like, we're not sure anymore. Freedom to what? We're not sure anymore, but we really want freedom. That's our identity. That's our ethos, right? And the more you have of it, especially up here in North Idaho, the happier we are. Freedom. Every kingdom is about something. Every nation has its identity, what it's aiming for. The kingdom of God is aimed at nearness to the Lord Himself. This is what the kingdom is about. Closeness with Him. And in the context of 2 Peter, sharing His divine nature. Jesus brings us in to be near our God. Even as the psalmist says, your nearness is to us our good so that we might share His holiness and share His nature. And that, I would say, is probably the main narrative arc of the entire Bible. God working to bring His people in to be near Him. The very last words of the prophet Ezekiel The name of that place, the name of that city, the name of that kingdom is Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there. He will be their God and they will be His people. This is where it's headed. This is what the kingdom is about. It's about life. It's about having God as your possession and Him having you as His. You know, in Matthew 25, Jesus when he's telling that parable, it's not really even a parable, it's a description of a final judgment. He says, enter the kingdom in one place. And then he says, enter the joy of your Father in another place. And he essentially equating them. That entrance into the kingdom, that end goal, where we're going, what this whole thing is about, is entering into and possessing and being in the joy of the Father. Do you understand that that is your destiny, brothers and sisters? Not so much to enter a place or an ideal situation or a mansion one day, but to enter the joy of God Himself. This is what the kingdom of God is aimed at. Nearness to God. This is why you should want to enter. And you may enter it. Even today. This is why it is good news to be told, and here is your king. If you want to enter this kingdom, follow me.
follow the king. This is blessedness. This is eternal life, to be near God and to enter his joy. This is what Jesus comes to do. And we can rejoice in his plan. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for granting us such a great kingdom. And how much we can rejoice knowing that you will surely bring it to completion. That it is all of grace. It's not in question whether or not this is going to happen or not. And you invite us in. You've made everything ready for us to enter in. Grant us a desire to follow our King even now and invite others to come in to this great kingdom. We pray these things in the name of our King. Amen.